0: The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org.
1: Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Paul Watska. He is a former state hydrologist for the Minnesota Department of Agriculture. He is now an independent consultant and an organic farmer. And his specialty, or what he has done most research on, and that we're going to be talking about today, is atrazine, which is a very popular herbicide that is persistent in our environment, and Mr. Watska is both a scientist and an investigator of this particular compound. So welcome, Mr. Watska. It's a pleasure to have you.
0: Pleasure to be here.
1: Well, I became aware of you. I should let our listeners know. I, I happened to stumble upon a report that was done in January of 2010. I realize it's seven years old, but it's still extremely pertinent. And it was it was titled, The Syngenta Corporation and Atrazine, The Cost to the Land, People, and Democracy. And in that, in Chapter 3, and I'll provide a link to this report for our listeners, There's a story about your work. You were titled The Whitewater Whistleblower, the story of how hydrologist Paul Watska's research into atrazine led to his being fired. But I think that there is a great story here in that you as a scientist became an advocate for what you were finding because you wanted to protect the environment and public health. So we're going to focus on that. But first, why don't you let our listeners know, what is a hydrologist?
0: So a hydrologist is someone who studies water, specifically the water cycle. So for my part, I was studying rivers and streams, but hydrologists can study oceans, they can study lakes, and they can study the atmosphere, because there's a lot of water in our atmosphere. So those are all components of the hydrologic cycle, and we think of water as in constant motion on this planet and it it is not only necessary for all life but it has a number of other functions in particular it uh, moves heat around the planet Hmm. and it cools off very hot places and it can keep some very cold places very cold and it changes state you know it goes between a liquid and a solid and a gas you know a water vapor and in those processes we get such things as thunderstorms. We can get incredible variability in our weather. This week in Minnesota, we're speaking on in the second full week in March. And we just had our earliest on record tornadoes this week. Mm-hmm. And the week started off with sixteen inches of snow on the ground here in southeast Minnesota and Right now, we have none, and a hydrologist would study where does all that water go.
1: Do you remember when you first became interested in this topic and what led you to become a hydrologist professionally?
0: Yes, I have a degree in civil engineering, and you don't oftentimes think of civil engineers as hydrologists or or studying water, but in civil engineering school, there was Four different disciplines you could study water resources, you could study transportation, you could study surveying, or you could study reinforced concrete. <laughs> and so when I was you know picking between those topical areas, the one that excited me the most were classes in uh, fluid uh, mechanics and fluid dynamics. I was really intrigued. By University of Minnesota has a, a wonderful water lab there, St. Anthony Falls Water Lab. It's located on the Mississippi River. It is the largest drop in the Mississippi River of over 50 feet. It's right in downtown Minneapolis and uh, it was just a very intriguing place to work and study. And uh, I had just some really wonderful, wonderful professors there that mm-hmm. taught me the basics of Everything from, like I say, fluid mechanics to thermodynamics to how do you measure water flowing in a stream. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was it was a wonderful foundation for the water quality work that I ended up doing in Minnesota for agencies like the Metropolitan Council. That's where I started out looking at stormwater and stormwater quality. And then I worked for the Hennepin Conservation District, which is Uh, Hennepin is the county in which Minneapolis is located, and we studied uh, pesticides and PAHs, uh, polynuclear aromatic hydrocarbons in stormwater. And from there, I went to work for the Minnesota Department of Agriculture looking at pesticides in uh, rivers and streams throughout the state. I was the very first person to really take a hard look at where these various pesticides occurred in the state, what concentrations they occurred, and I really had some wonderful partnerships built across the state with, with various groups, including um, oh, the USGS, a number of soil and water conservation districts, and uh, other state agencies like the Department of Natural Resources.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, as a dietitian, our professions collide, or intersect, I should say, in that I remember the day I learned that water was our most critical nutrient. And I don't think that we often think of water as a nutrient per se, but it is the most essential and critical nutrient. And I tend to think that maybe we take it for granted a bit. You know, we turn on our taps, we assume that the water coming out is going to be clean. And I wish in our dietetics education we learned more about the kinds of things that you understand, such as the water cycle, for example. And just for our listeners, could you explain what the water cycle is exactly?
0: Yeah, so the water cycle is the various components of where you find water on the planet. So you'll find water in, first of all, the oceans and and lakes. Water evaporates and moves off of the oceans and large lakes comes down as precipitation on the landscape moves into rivers and streams and that is another component of the hydrologic cycle, rivers and streams. And it can also leach through the soil into aquifers. Mm. And that's that's another component of the hydrologic cycle. So we have groundwater, surface water, and atmospheric water that we all study looking at the hydrologic cycle.
1: It's very interesting because I'll tell you a little story. I was at my farmer's market a couple of years ago, and I was talking to one of the farmers about what he used on his land, and he was growing Milo for chicken feed. And I asked him what he sprayed on his Milo, and he said he used atrazine, and I expressed a little concern about the toxicity of that particular herbicide and that it would get into our watershed. And His interpretation of what I was saying was, well, it's not a problem for me because I don't live on a watershed. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you here is because I think we need a lot more education about watersheds and water cycles and how when I read an article saying that we have glyphosate, which is Monsanto's Roundup's major ingredient in our rainwater in the Mississippi River watershed, or when we find atrazine in our rainwater, I think it's important for us to know how it got there. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so you're in Missouri, and I'm in Minnesota, and we live in the same watershed. Right. So the Mississippi River encompasses one very major watershed of North America. You can think of a watershed as just a drainage area that has a common outlet. So I live in a whitewater watershed, it's a small watershed in southeastern Minnesota, but I have a lot in common with everyone that lives, works, and plays in this watershed from the standpoint that I drink the water. I pump that water that's in the aquifer underneath that watershed into my kitchen sink every day. My dog and I, we like to um, go out and run around in the the streams, and I, I fish and swim in those streams, and so that water is a reflection of all the land uses in that watershed. So if we are applying, uh, for example, atrazine or glyphosate on land that is within that watershed, it will inevitably show up in that stream and, and inevitably show up in the groundwater. There's a couple of characteristics of atrazine that everybody should be concerned about. The the first one is that it's uh, very widely used. Uh, At least here in the upper Midwest, it's used almost exclusively on field corn. So about half of our landscape in this part of Minnesota is field corn. So about half of the corn acres in this area will receive at least one application of atrazine during any given growing season. So the other thing is that atrazine is fairly water soluble, and as such, it moves with the water. And so if you get an intense rainfall, especially in close proximity to when it's applied on a cornfield, some of that atrazine will wash off and end up in the river. Here in southeast Minnesota, we have karst geology, and so we have a very intimately connected system of rivers and aquifers. And so rivers can sometimes flow directly into aquifers, Uh, sometimes aquifers dump directly into rivers and vice versa, but that is how it would end up in my kitchen sink, is that it gets washed off a field where it's applied and it flows into a stream and and that stream dumps into the aquifer that I drink from. One of the other characteristics that people should be concerned about is that atrazine tends to be long-lived. That is, its half-life, once it moves out of the soil profile, can be very long. For example, in aquifers, its half-life can be upwards of 20 years. So atrazine that may end up in an aquifer can be there for many decades after it enters that aquifer.
1: Wow. I'm assuming that we would maybe find it in the flesh of fish?
0: Now that's one thing that atrazine does not do. It does not bioaccumulate
1: okay.
0: uh, in fish tissue, you know, like some of the
1: like DDT. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. So it does not have that characteristic. So it's it's also important to note that you know atrazine is a an herbicide, and, okay. and that's one of its singular uses. You know, it it's used to kill weeds. That's, mm-hmm. that's what farmers do. They they kill weeds with it, and it kills a lot of weeds very effectively, and it is also very cheap. And so that's another reason why farmers use it. Uh, yeah. It's a cheap and effective way to kill weeds.
1: Now, you mentioned that atrazine will get into surface and groundwater. Perhaps we should just give a quick explanation of the difference between surface and groundwater and the water that comes via our tap. Most of us well, we're either going to get water in a rural area, probably on a well system, and then if you're living in a municipality, it's going to likely go through a treatment center. And I'm wondering if you can trace atrazine for me from surface to ground to the treatment center, and will treatment centers effectively remove it?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So when it comes to municipalities, municipalities are usually pretty good about testing for atrazine. Municipalities can get their water from either surface or groundwater. And the distinction between the two is, on the face of it, is is fairly simple. You know, surface water are rivers and streams and groundwater are aquifers. But like I indicated, there are parts of the country that have very intimately connected surface and groundwater. So making that distinction is really somewhat academic, Mm -hmm. but when it comes to municipalities, municipalities that get their water in particular from surface water go through some very extensive treatment. So they're uh, not only testing, but they're treating that water for what you would suspect is, you know, things like various pathogens, various bacteria, viruses, that kind of thing. They're also filtering it. Uh, Sand filtration is a common way to clean up a lot of just cloudiness and, and fine particles in surface water. And then they'll they have standards that they have to meet, primary and secondary drinking water standards. So they have a very extensive treatment plant really to clean up that water. In groundwater systems, and this is this is really fascinating because one of the large towns that is near me is Rochester, Minnesota. It's home of the Mayo Clinic. Right. And Rochester, 110,000 people. They have, uh, we have 30-odd wells all around that particular town, but they don't treat their water at all. They have the wonderful gift of what we call the Jordan Aquifer. So it's a very pristine aquifer that they just pump that water right out of the ground. They add a little bit of chlorine. They add a little bit of fluoride because they're required to do those two things. They add a little scale Something to keep to keep the water from from leaching metals out of pipes, and then they pump it into people's houses. I mean, it is it is just that great of a product, okay? <laughs> and one of the things that they're concerned about is what happens when they run out of that pristine aquifer. And they're taking some very extensive precautions to try to make sure that it stays that way. But it's going to be very very tough mm-hmm. when it comes to private landowners. So every well owner is their own water authority. That is, they're responsible for testing, they're responsible for treating, they're responsible for the distribution system and maintaining pressure and all those things. And most well owners have no idea that they should be testing until something goes wrong. Somebody gets sick or their water turns really cloudy. Mm-hmm. And then they start wondering, well, how safe is this water to drink? And so it's it's a real good practice to get your well water tested if you're a, a private well owner at least once a year, in particular for bacteria and nitrates. And if you have some problems, you know, you should test more often with those particular water quality constituents. Mm-hmm.
1: Let me take one break and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by the former state hydrologist for the Minnesota Department of Agriculture, Mr. Paul Watska. He is now an independent consultant as well as an organic farmer, and he is located in the southern part of the state of Minnesota. Did you want to say anything else about the differences between the well and the tap water in municipalities?
0: Yeah, I just want to make sure that everybody would understand that some municipalities do get their drinking water from aquifers and some of them get it from rivers and streams. In particular large municipalities here in Minnesota, uh, cities like St. Paul and Minneapolis and St. Cloud, get their water exclusively uh, the Mississippi River. Mm. And so that's, again, one reason that you don't want to see atrazine in in, uh, the River is that there are a lot of towns. I'm not aware of quite how it um, sizes up in Missouri, but you know, my guess is that large towns like St. Louis probably get their drinking water also from the Mississippi River.
1: Now, you mentioned that folks who have well water should have it tested. Where would they go to have it tested?
0: Yes, so most states have certified labs, and they can be private or public labs, but it's important that they're certified. And so sometimes it's a county public health lab. They should be able to call their health department, municipality or health department right, to find out where they could have their water tested. And, and I would point out that the, the bacteria and, and nitrate tests are fairly inexpensive. Again, it's just a really good idea that if you have concerns about your water, that you at least get it tested once a year with those two uh, parameters.
1: You know, I think it's interesting, too, with the testing. I was just reading a report on how much is safe. So the particular farmer that I mentioned earlier who didn't think that atrazine was a problem didn't think it was a problem because the representative from the Environmental Protection Agency told him it wasn't a problem. And in the Land Stewardship Project report, there is a paragraph here that says that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency drinking water standard for atrazine is three parts per billion, but research conducted by Professor Tyrone Hayes at the University of California shows that exposing frogs to as little as 0.1 part per billion of atrazine causes severe health problems, including inducing a kind of chemical castration. So what we're told by the testing agency that is safe may not be safe, and then here we are, as consumers of this, the most critical nutrient on Earth, being faced with contaminated water.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, Tyrone has really studied it extensively at those lower concentration numbers. And it's common to see various other creatures on this planet that are dramatically affected by low levels of these man-made chemicals that we are indicating, you know, we can, as mammals, we can drink more of it. And I think it's really important that, you know, we don't discount the fact that we're just, just one one entity here on the planet, you know, I mean, we're, we have no right to take out all the frogs in, in the world.
1: You know, right. That
0: we really have to be good stewards of our only home here.
1: Right. I agree with you. It's not just about us. It's about all of the creatures that we share this beautiful planet with. I'm glad you mentioned that. Well, I will also share, you mentioned the USGS. This is a fabulous, I guess it's it's funded by the U.S. government, or at least we hope that it will continue to be funded by the U.S. government, but it is basically a source for looking at the amount of pesticides used across the United States, and I will have a link for the National Water Quality Assessment Program. Uh This is part of USGS, and I will have a map for our listeners so they can see Exactly where the estimated agricultural uses for atrazine are the highest. And it, as you mentioned, it is right in that corn belt, and so the states most affected are in the Midwest, but there are also bands of use in the southeastern part of the United States. There's a little bit in Texas. So it's being used, and as you say, we are part of this water cycle, so I'm assuming that it might be sprayed here, but show up elsewhere where it is not used on agricultural lands.
0: Yes, we did a study in uh, Minneapolis, Minneapolis known as the Chain of Lakes, and so they were having some issues with some zooplankton dying in their lakes, and they wanted to know what what pesticides could possibly be affecting some of the ecology of the lake. So we did a, a pesticide, one of the first urban pesticide studies done back in the 1990s, and We found a number of what you would think of as common dandelion killers, weed killers in urban areas, but we also found atrazine. And it was really puzzling to us because, uh, you know, if you wanted to kill at least cool and cold season grasses, you'd use atrazine. So there was no rhyme or reason to find atrazine in urban stormwater. It just didn't make any sense to us. And then we started measuring atrazine in rainfall in, in Minneapolis, and lo and behold, it was coming down in the rain. It was moving off of farm fields surrounding the Twin Cities and evaporating and ending up in rainfall and then in the stormwater and then into the stormwater system that dumps into the lakes. So that's how... Andrazine can end up in places that it really isn't even being used.
1: Mm-hmm. I should probably let our listeners know a little bit about water filters just because I think there will be a sense of concern, and you are an expert in this area. And I hate that an individual has to take on, you know, it's it's an externalized cost for the person who's not using the pollutant, and not everyone can afford a water filter it really should be done, in my opinion, at a state and national level to control the use of pollutants that are allowed. But for those of our listeners who are concerned about filtering their water, what is the best way to get atrazine and other farm chemicals out?
0: Yeah, so the probably the most cost-effective way would be some type of carbon filtration system. They make different filter pitchers, you know, where you can... Put your tap water in the top and there's a carbon filtration system that seeps through that, you know, in the middle of the night when you've got the pitcher in the uh, uh, refrigerator and then the, what comes out of the filter is a water that has been cleansed of, of any pesticide. The important thing to remember about, and this goes to any filtration device, is that they get used up. You know, yeah. They, they they get clogged and, and they no longer work. And so if you've got either knowledge that there you have pesticides and or nitrates in your water, you might want to go to a reverse osmosis system. There's a lot of good commercially available reverse osmosis RO systems on the market. You want to always you know, make sure that you're filtering the water that you're drinking ingesting because that that can potentially cause you the greatest harm
1: mm-hmm. We just have a couple of minutes left, and I know that this is also very much a political issue, and many scientists don't feel comfortable blending advocacy with research. I'm very grateful that you do believe that that's important, and I want to thank you for bringing these issues forward. What would you want our listeners to know about the political side of this? Is there a call to action that you'd like to leave our listeners with?
0: I I think everyone really should refuse to sit on their hands. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. when I was telling farmers not to use uh, pesticides and and to try to farm differently, I just, uh, you know, I, I need to practice what I preach. And so... I'm currently have a, a small organic farming business with my family and we're raising everything from rhubarb and asparagus to uh, a variety of berries and, and hazelnuts and uh, a number of different fruits including peaches. You know, someday we may have some of the first organic peaches coming out of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm getting at is that people need to be spurred into action that they do not have to take the status quo as something they can't change. And so everyone who has a need to purchase food, which I think is most of us, you know, every time you purchase food, you are creating markets. And if you want to create uh, a bigger organic vegetable or fruit market, buy organic. If you want to start growing organic food, there's wonderful educational opportunities, Uh, people like uh, Moses, that I think you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, We'll provide a link
1: to the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service for that.
0: Yes, and they have wonderful, wonderful resources about how to go about growing your own food organically. And, you know, I live on a ridge that has four organic dairy farmers, and right now they can't produce enough milk to keep up with the demand. They work for a cooperative called Organic Valley, and Organic Valley has been just wonderful about getting their products into hopefully nearly everyone's supermarket. So, organic fruit and, and vegetables and dairy products should be available to just about everybody. And, and getting to know your, your the person that grows your food is also can be a wonderful endeavor. That's what I would encourage people to do.
1: All right, well, we'll have to leave it at that. Our time is up, unfortunately, but I want to thank you so much for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sooth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Again, we have been speaking with Mr. Paul Watska. He is a former state hydrologist for the Minnesota Department of Agriculture, now an independent consultant and an organic farmer. Thank you so much for your work and for being my guest.
0: You're very welcome, Melinda, and and thank you for doing programs like this.